I'll be reading today from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 38 from the Common English Bible on behaving as God's children. But I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks and don't demand your things back from those who take them. Treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, why should you be commended? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, why should you be commended? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be paid back in full. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. If you do, you will have a great reward. You will be acting the way children of the Most High act, for he is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing, will fall into your lap. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. Will you please join me in prayer? God, we thank you so much for the truth of this Advent season that we just sang together. That your name, your presence, the life and love in you make the darkness tremble. Lord, there are many in the world and many in this community today that are carrying heavy burdens of grief and loss, grief and loss that have already occurred, perhaps the anticipation of losses still to come. There are those of us who know personally the suffering of prejudice, the suffering of injustice, the suffering of harm caused at the hands of those we trusted. Wherever we are in darkness, Jesus, speak again. Speak and let there be light. Speak to us even this morning through your word about who you are so that we can live more freely and joyfully as your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
My name is Megan. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. And last week we began this Advent conversation called Intense Simplicities, um, which I told you is a phrase that comes from one of my all-time favorite quotes by Winston Churchill, who, who says that out of intense complexities, intense simplicities emerge. Out of intense complexities, intense simplicities emerge. Now, I've always loved that phrase because the world is complicated and life is complicated and faith often seems complicated, and yet it suggests that at the heart of everything, there are some just like intensely simple truths that the world is framed around. A child could state them, but the whole world exists within them, and I really believe that's how Christian faith works. So this Advent, we're kind of asking ourselves, like, what are some of the intense simplicities at the foundation of Christian faith? Um, you know, every, every religion, every philosophy of life tends to have a set of uh, what you might call a rule of life, a set of commands about, like, how are people supposed to live? Um, and Jesus gives Christianity as kind of rule of life in John 15, 12, in just one really simple verse. Um, Jesus says to his followers, this is my commandment, love each other just as I have loved you. This is like the marvelous, intense simplicity at the heart of Christianity. Christianity's entire rule of life, all the commands that Jesus has given, can be summed up in one command that is actually just one word. Love. Like, it's all there, Jesus says. And it's not only simple, but what's really great about it is that it seems incredibly uncontroversial because nobody in the entire planet objects to love as a concept, right? This is why Christmas is the season of love. It's why we buy fancy overpriced pears and socks with people's dogs on them when we know that people don't need pears or dog socks. But we just want them to know that we love them. It's why we give money to strangers ringing bells outside the door because we want to show some kind of love for humanity. But just for today, I mean, let me just throw out a question, kind of posit a question to you. What if Jesus' definition of love is not as uncontroversial as we think? I mean, it's one thing to say love. My command is to love. But when you get down to it, how does Jesus define it? And Jesus gives his definition in Luke chapter 6. We, we just heard it. So there's only one command. There's only one word at the heart of Christianity. But what did Jesus mean by it? That's the question. And I think when we really ask what Jesus meant by it, all of a sudden we begin to glimpse why the intense simplicity at the heart of Christianity is radically different um, than what the rest of the world means when we talk about love and put the ornament on the tree. So, so what does love mean to Jesus? Like if he says this is the one thing, what does it mean to him? Well, well, let's kind of build up a definition starting here. Um, what love means to Jesus begins with doing good. Do good. This comes up several times in Luke 6 when Jesus is giving his definition of love. Um, he, he says it once in verse 27. He says, I, I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. He says it again in verse 35, even more straightforward. Love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Do good. Now, at this point, I'm just going to pretty much be stating the obvious. I think most of us have heard this many times, but we need reminders occasionally that love is not measured by a feeling you have towards somebody. Love is measured by action. 
to, to say to yourself, like, I love this person. I have this warm, fuzzy feeling when they're around, or I love them because I don't hate them, or like, you know, pour orange juice on their plants. Um, that is not Jesus' definition of love. Real love is active. And by a kind of inverse measure, it's also worth remembering that you can feel totally frustrated with somebody, but if you are acting for their good, if you are doing something, you are not outside the story of love, even if you're feeling frustration. Right? It, love is a doing thing. It's an action thing. And you might wonder, like, what does it mean to do good? That's kind of a vague phrase. And Jesus gives all sorts of verbs in this passage. He says, bless, pray, turn, give, lend. There are a lot of verbs. And the point is, you know, Christianity is not a rule-based faith. There's no one kind of formula to what doing good means. It basically means acting in pursuit of somebody else's well-being. Acting for their wholeness. So Jesus kind of scatters all these verbs around and says, do good, act for the well-being, act for the wholeness of the people around you. That's what love is. It's doing something. Okay, so far so good, right? N nobody has panicked yet. We generally accept that love should have some kind of a verb behind it. But then Jesus starts making a little bit more uncomfortable by ratcheting it up. Do good, but not just good. And this is my word for what Jesus says. Do lavish good. I mean, did you hear some of the descriptions in that passage of what Jesus says to do for other people? There's this bizarre kind of extravagance to it. I mean, look at verse 29 to begin with. Jesus says, if somebody takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt. He goes further in the next verse. He says, give to everybody who asks you and don't demand your things back from those who take them. This isn't just generous. This is some kind of a radical open-handedness, right? Jesus is suggesting this posture of basically holding everything that is ours loosely. Treating everybody around us as if every person we meet were family, right? You don't like question your family when they want to take a cup or a fork. You, you just give it to them. And the, this teaching of Jesus reminds me of my, my all-time favorite movie, play, book, all of it, Les Mis. Um, how many of you have seen or read some version of Les Mis? A lot of you? Okay, if you haven't, put that on your Christmas list. This is my, my one piece of fiction that I think every Christian should be exposed to. Um, but in the story of Les Mis, um, at the very beginning of the story, it all begins with this man who is an ex-convict. He's recently been released from prison. And he is, you know, out in the world, and he's invited to spend one night in the home of a local priest. And the, in the middle of the night, he gets up, and from this priest who's welcomed him into his house, he steals his silverware. Right, the, like one of the few things of value this priest owns. And he runs off with the silverware and immediately gets caught and arrested. And the police haul this convict back to the priest and they're like, look at what this guy stole to you. And the priest says, he didn't steal them. I gave him that silverware and hey, you forgot the silver candlesticks. Now what's really, I think, just remarkable and genius about this story is that it's literally straight up word for word exactly what Jesus has described here. But when you hear it in a narrative setting, it sounds so radical. That the, the, this priest, this Christian, this representative of Jesus has taken something that was stolen from him and turned it inside out and said, hey, I'm making that a gift and I'm giving you more on top of it. 
I mean, it, it's so radical, it's so unexpected, it's so disruptive that it changes the course of this entire man's life and sets off this huge kind of epic story of redemption. And this is exactly what Jesus is suggesting is possible if Christians would posture ourselves this way. Live with that kind of open-handedness with the people around us. I think there's only one reason that we would ever choose to live that way, and Jesus gives the one reason, and this is the reason he gives in verse 35. He says, if if you do this, if you live in this open-handed way, you will be acting the way children of the Most High act, for he, for God, is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. And Jesus says, we, we want to live this way. We want to love with this kind of radical, open-handed generosity because this is who God is. God gives gifts of, of rain and sun and food and beauty to everybody, whether they deserve it or not. And not only does God just give that kind of generously and lavishly to the undeserving, but Jesus says, here's how God gives. And I, I really love this in verse 38. How, what does God look like a, as a giver, well, given it will be given to you a good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing. Um, you all should know I have very strong feelings about Subway restaurants and which ones are good and which ones are bad. <laughs> and I have a very simple rule for what makes a good Subway. When you order a tuna sandwich and you say that you want olives and pickles on it, there is nothing in the world worse than the person who counts out like four pickles and places them several inches apart across your sandwich. You're like, what, could I, could I tip you a quarter for more pickles? Like, why are you being so stingy? Why are there three olives on this sandwich? Like, I always remember which are the good subways that take the handful and just like smack those things on there, right? You're like, you all are amazing, this is awesome. Jesus says, this is how God gives, right? God is not counting out pickles. God is taking the handful and packing it down there, right? God, God is a lavish giver. That's the kind of treatment you can expect when you show up at God's house, right? Our generosity as Christians is not coming from a place of guilt and obligation. That's not what kicks this thing off. It's coming from the sense of joy and lightness that we can afford to be generous because we have a God who's heaping things into our cup. Like when we are, when we are accustomed, when we are expecting to be treated that way by God, there's just this kind of joy and freedom that overtakes us that says we can lavish on everybody else too, Right? Because that's the kind of economy that we're a part of. That's the kind of world we're operating in. God is a lavish giver, and we can do lavish good to others. Okay, so far so good. Do lavish good, but to who? Well, Jesus says, do lavish good to everyone. This is where the challenge of Jesus and love really starts picking up steam. Who is included? Who is this lavish generosity supposed to be covering? Well, Jesus is really explicit. The measure of love by his standard is not about your friends, your family, or the people you're buying Christmas presents for. That's not the Jesus measure of love. And he gives his measure in, in verses 32 and 33. He says, if you love those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. Next verse. 
And if you do good to those who do good to you, why should you be commended? Even sinners do that. The people you bought Christmas presents for are not the measure of Jesus-shaped love, and neither is a general love for humanity that leads you to give to the Salvation Army. I mean, Jesus says, he is talking specifically, the measure of Jesus-shaped love is the measure of love, the doing of lavish good, specifically toward the people you can't stand. I was reading a commentary this week by one of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, who just said this about this passage. N.T. Wright says, think of the best thing that you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of the best thing that you could do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. This is the place where Jesus-shaped love all of a sudden starts parting ways from secular tolerance. Now, the, the one thing about, you know, we have a, a society that really is trying to cultivate as a, a virtue tolerance of people who differ, but the one place that secular tolerance cannot go is toward tolerating intolerant people, right? It's where the whole system like implodes like a black hole. I mean, and this is where Jesus says something fundamentally different. He says, I am talking exactly about those intolerant people. I'm talking exactly about the people who oppose you as a Jesus follower. I'm talking exactly about the people who oppose the things that you think are right. Those people, he says in verse 27 and 28, love those enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I'm talking precisely about the people who oppose you and what you think is good. Those are the people I'm telling you as my followers to be lavishly good and generous with. I'm really pressing on this because I think something about this logic is just in direct contradiction to an American narrative that you approve those you love and bless. Right? We can't love and bless our enemies because that's like saying we approve what they believe or we approve what they're doing. Um, this is not, Jesus does not think that blessing those who curse us is agreeing with our ends. But it's making a commitment that we are going to seek the good of our opponents as people and never their harm. Like when we face our opponents, we're not endorsing their cause, we're not saying we agree, but we are committing that we will actively seek their good as people and not their harm. That's where Jesus' love takes a very different turn from a kind of generic tolerance. So do, do lavish good to everyone. Let me add one more word, always. Um, now, this should perhaps be implicit in the everyone, um, but I, I think a lot of us get so uncomfortable in Jesus' definition of love here that we're kind of prone to excuses, and we're like, okay, love everybody, but not all the time, right? Like, I can love so-and-so, but not when they're being a jerk. But Jesus says, exactly then, exactly when they're being a jerk, that's the moment to love them. The time when they're cursing is the moment to bless them. The time when they're stealing from you is the moment to give them something extra. The time when they're slapping you is the moment to turn your cheek. That's a Jesus-shaped ethic. And now, it's really important to be clear here, this is not, this kind of description Jesus is giving of an active love all the time, even in the face of opposition, is not opposed to truth-telling. And we know this because Jesus 
lives and enacts what love looks like to him, and he can really get in people's face sometimes. Jesus is not opposed to calling out truth in a strong way. As a general rule, Jesus' followers don't do anything in the dark. Sometimes we as Christians, we have this long, ugly history of being prone to covering up things in the name of love, but what happens in the dark is things inevitably fester. Right? If you're asking yourself, what does love mean in this situation, I can almost guarantee to you that what love does not mean is covering something up. That's not love. But whatever action we take in the name of truth, and this is, this is really important, any action we take in truth-telling is done not with glee and not with intent to harm, inflict pain and shame on the person, not with that as the goal. The intent is for their healing, for their good, and for their wholeness. If it's not done with that intent, if the intent is to harm rather than heal, then it's not being done in the name of Jesus. Right? That, that, that's where the, the kind of action, the truth-telling, has begun to part ways from what Jesus is describing. Now, this is where it's really interesting in, in Jesus' description here in verse 37, the subject of judgment comes up, where Jesus says, don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Jesus is saying we all need to get out of the business of judging who is worthy of our lavish love. We just need to get out of the business entirely of asking ourselves who is worthy of this. Wrong question, right? What we do lavish good to everyone, friends, enemies, opponents, all of them, and let the judgment be God's. I mean, now the world will tell us that loving in this way, practicing this kind of generosity, this kind of enemy love is switching teams, but Jesus says this is what it means to play for his team. Right? This, is, this is the one behavior, and this is the intense simplicity of it. This kind of indiscriminate, all the time, blessing is the one behavior that separates Jesus' followers from everybody else. This is it. Do lavish good to everyone, always, without expectation. I don't know if you heard this, but the word expectation came up a couple times in Jesus' description. Um, Verse 34, Jesus says, if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, why should you be commended? Verse 35, even sinners lend to sinners expecting to get paid back in full. What is your expectation in showing this kind of lavish, indiscriminate generosity? Um, It's often said in studies of world religion that the one thing that all world religions agree on is the golden rule. Um, And this comes up in verse 31. Jesus gives what what we call the golden rule. He, He says, treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. And many scholars of religion have said this is the one thing that all religions agree on. Um... This golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, this is the reason we don't budge in line at Costco. This is the reason we don't walk out of the restaurant without tipping. This is the reason you don't punch the person who's taking the last toy you wanted for your grandkid in the target aisle. It's the one thing that everybody agrees on. Like The world will be better if you do for other people what you want them to do for you. Now, here's the problem. 
The one thing that nobody ever states about this lovely golden rule, or nobody acknowledges, is that this universal rule operates by a simple principle of reciprocity. You treat your neighbor as you want to be treated because you are hoping for a return on that investment. I mean, you don't budge in the line at Costco because you don't want people to budge in front of you at the line at Costco. Right? You don't steal, punch the person, and take the toy because you don't want to have to explain your black eye to your spouse. You tip at the restaurant because you want to be welcomed the next time you come back and you don't want to wonder if they spit in your pasta. Right? Like, there's this kind of reciprocity element that is baked into this entire principle. And the, this, this golden rule, this already existed in Jesus' culture. He didn't make this up. This was already something that was often said and discussed. It was discussed in Roman culture. It was a kind of key principle that the ancient world operated by. And particularly if you were a rich person in this society, like, you're going to give a lot of money and, and gifts to poor people. But the reason you do it isn't just because you're generous. You give gifts to the poor because there's an expectation that they are going to return something on that investment. They are going to honor you. They are going to serve you. They are going to give you a good reputation in the community. They're going to make you look good. I mean, there's all sorts of reciprocity built into the system. So when Jesus brings up this golden rule, what's really amazing is he's not just repeating it and being like, yeah, I'm on board with this universal principle. Jesus is saying, hey, that sounds like a great idea, but you know what we're going to do as my people? We are going to completely flip the table of obligation. We're going to completely disrupt what everybody else in the world thinks this golden rule means. We're going to give lavishly, but we're going to expect nothing in return. We're not going to expect gratitude. We're not going to expect gifts and invitations back. We're not going to expect some kind of return good behavior. We're going to give a true gift, and the only way to give a true gift is to release it and release your expectation with it. We're going to release the obligation of response. We're not going to love our enemies because we think it's going to make them be nice back. We're just going to do it. We're just going to release it. We're going to make it a true gift as Jesus offers true gifts. You know, this is an incredibly hard thing to learn how to do, but there's something so freeing when you begin to embrace it. When you can give up the weight of all those expectations and all of that counting, like what do they owe? And you just do it and you let it go. I mean, that's what Jesus is describing. Love like his love looks like. It's doing it with no expectation of a return back on it. Do good. Do lavish good to everyone, always, without expectation. I don't know what you think when you look at this as a description of love, but perhaps what's going to your mind is, who can do this? I mean, are we all just doomed? And here, it's, it's really important as we ask ourselves that question, who can do this, to remember Jesus says the whole reason we love this way is because God is wildly generous beyond our imagination. This is his whole point. God lavishes love and generosity even on the people who don't deserve it. God gives gifts to us without expectation of return, which basically means that God is the opposite of Santa Claus. Like there, there's no naughty nice list rolling in heaven that God is using to decide which ones of us to bless and to love. 
right? Those gifts of God are free. And when we kind of begin to relax into that, to, to let go of all the weight of kind of expectation and obligation and understand we're not living in that. But when we begin to receive just the kind of deep truth of this kind of lavish generosity from God that has no condition and no expectation attached, essentially what happens is we can relax. We can relax and we can start reaching toward others with this kind of wild, generous freedom. Because nothing is necessary, exactly. So freedom is what we have, this kind of wild, lavish freedom that comes from that security and knowing we are loved like that. And when I, when I read this teaching of Jesus and I think about this definition of love, I think, you know, most of the world would read this and think this is shockingly naive behavior. And what's really interesting is that being naive is exactly what the Roman world accused the early Christians of. They called them simple-minded people, right? They're like, this community, you can't, you can't actually live this way. You can't actually love this way. You can't actually share this generously. It's too naive. It's too simple. And to that, I think we should simply embrace the charge. In a complicated world, we are intensely simple people. In a complicated world, we are intensely simple people. Because we believe we serve a God who packs the cup. A God who serves up handfuls. A God who pours until the cup spills over. The God of Mary who's turning mourning to weeping and has a plan to tip tyrants off thrones. And if that's true, if that belief we hold is true, we can afford to do lavish good to everybody, always, without expectation, and leave the rest to God. No one else in the world is that free, but we are. We are free to be that simple. That's our gift as the people of Jesus. That's our gift to the world. I want you to join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, you have loved us with a lavish generosity that we haven't even begun to conceive. We confess that a lot of us are still living with this deep secret feeling that you are like Santa, carefully tracking a list of our wrongs, asking if we're worthy. Yet you are a God who tells us up front, tells us boldly and without shame that you will give and give and give and give anyway. You will give without expectation of any return. You will give even when we are wicked and ungrateful. We are bathing in the abundance of your generosity. We pray that you would show us how to relax into the peace and the joy and the freedom of that realization. We pray that you would make us lavish, generous lovers of others not from guilt and obligation, but from the wild and unexpected freedom that you've given. Lord, we pray by your spirit that you would tie this invitation of love to specific names and faces in our lives even now. Show us our opportunity this season 
not just forgiving pears and socks to friends and family, but forgiving lavish gifts, unmerited generous gifts, even to those who oppose us, even to those who feel like enemies. Teach us the joy of living in that freedom. Lord, may your kingdom come, your enemy-loving kingdom, and your will be done on earth among us as it is in heaven. Amen.